Um, today we're going to continue in Revelation chapter 2, and uh, we're going to read verses 8 through 11. So let's ask the Lord to bless. Lord, I pray you just bring forth your word now in a powerful way that you can speak to each one of us, help, help us get what you want to communicate in Jesus' name. Uh, Revelation 2, 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So again, like the last week's message, he says, he who has an ear. So what does that mean? It means we've got to incline our hearts to hear what is the Spirit saying because you can hear what I'm saying, you can hear the words I'm saying, you can read the words on the page, but what is the Spirit saying? And so we just ask the Lord to make us sensitive. We, we sit upright to attention, maybe not physically, but it helps to do that physically. But spiritually, just being uh, alert and saying, I want what the Spirit has to say to me. And so we start with this idea of there's uh, some issues in Smyrna, there's persecution. And throughout history, if you know your church history, you know that there's been a lot of persecution of the Christian believers. And often it comes from the church. But it's not the true church that does persecution. Whatever you've heard about the evil acts of different things throughout history perpetrated by the church, that is not a church that is walking in line with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was not one to recommend persecuting or burning heretics at the stake or, or seeking out witches and burning them. Jesus said to love your enemies and to lay down your life for, for your friends as well as your enemies. The gospel is about love, peace, righteousness, but it is not about all the horrible atrocities that we've seen throughout history. But now, much of it has not come from the quote-unquote church. It has come from other places, and it's coming today. Well, and I worked in China, as you know, and I saw persecution there. Uh, they've gone through tons of it. I worked with pastors that uh, were thrown into jail, and uh, they were beaten, they were kicked, they were tortured, and yet I would work with them, and they'd just smile as they were telling me about it. <laughs> they had these big grins, and I was just like, you're smiling, and you're still going. You're still persevering. And, you know, how is it? I always asked him, did you have a special presence of the Lord when you were going through that? And they'd all smile and say, hey, I couldn't have gone through it. Couldn't have gone through it without that. So we don't have to fear persecution. I know one pastor particularly who they, he said they were kicking him, and for some reason he was just laughing the whole time. God will give us the grace and strength if we'll persevere. And the reason they get, went through that and why Christians will go through persecution is because we embrace a greater glory. We embrace a greater treasure that we can willingly undergo a little trial 
in the in the short time that we have here. We can embrace things when we see what is in our future. Rejoice the Lord is king. The king is coming, and we are going to reign with him. I heard a pastor uh, as I was driving up to Cincinnati last week, uh, some wild Baptist preacher on the radio saying, you, you thank God for your mercy days, and you persevere through your misery days. He said, you got mercy days and you got misery days. And uh, you're thankful for the mercy days, but when it's all said and done, when Jesus returns, all we're going to have are the mercy days. The misery days, that's for the, the wicked. There's no rest for the wicked. There, that's, that's something that you don't want, an eternal days of misery. We have the promise and hope of eternal days of mercy, and, and it, mercy just co- translates into glory when the Lord restores everything and brings us into the new age. And so whatever you're going through today, whatever misery days you might have, we can rejoice that they're temporary, that they don't last forever. And when you're persecuted for the sake of the gospel, great is your reward. And that should give you strength and encouragement in the time of your suffering. Well, then a lot of us can say, well, brother, I'm suffering. I am suffering, but it's not for the sake of the gospel. So how can I get to be encouraged about it? I mean, think about it. Wouldn't it be easier to suffer if you knew it was for the cause of Jesus? You got thrown into jail. Uh, but it's because of the witness, and you know there's direct promises about great is your reward. But, you know, what if you're just suffering? You're dealing with a family issue, a situation at work, and something, and it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with your witness for Christ. How can that, how can that be encouraged? Well, you can turn any suffering, and let me say, everybody suffers. It's not just the church, not just Christians. Everybody goes through stuff. But you can turn any suffering into a gospel witness. You may not be suffering for the sake of the gospel, but you can turn it into a gospel exercise. In other words, when you respond to your suffering in the ways that are written in God's word and with the hope that is in Jesus Christ, when you start to worship the Lord, when the devil's expecting you to gripe and complain, when you get on your knees and say, your will be done, Lord, and that you just thank him that this isn't the end and that there is a hope and a future for me, that's a witness. That's witnessing the gospel before angels, principalities, and powers, and before your family members, work people, and school uh, students, and things like that. They might look at you and say, "Why, you know, you're taking this rather well. How can you get through like this?" And that's that's a gospel witness. So, whatever we're suffering with, we can turn it into something for the glory of God, and that should strengthen us. And then there's always this hope that the suffering, no matter how extended it is that we're going through, it is limited. Limited. That's a great word in this situation. All the trials, sufferings, and anxiety, depression, whatever it is, is limited. But Jesus is unlimited. And so we get in verse 8. He says, These things says the first and the last who was dead and now is alive. The first and the last. Now this is very important because this is spoken a lot in Scripture. In chapter 1, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. It's the same thing. Here he's saying, I am the first and the last. You know what that means? It means he is everything, unlimited, first and last. Now, 
before we look at this, we got to remember something about Jesus here. He is making a claim that has been stated in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 44, 6, the Lord is quoted as saying, I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. So, you know, throughout the prophets and through the writings in the Old Covenant, it was a very wrong move to worship anyone other than the Lord. And that's why all the hard times, all the judgments came upon Israel because they were turning to idols, to other gods. They were worshiping in the high places the wrong way. And the Lord says, I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Then comes Messiah Jesus. He comes, dies, rose again, rose again from the dead, and he receives worship. In the book of Revelation, you'll see an incredible chapter, chapter 5 of worship. People worshiping the Lamb, the Lamb of God. He's receiving worship that only is due to God. And here he makes the statement, this is the first and last. I am the first and last. I am the Alpha and Omega. Isaiah 44, 6 said, I'm the first and last. There is no God beside me. So if Jesus wasn't God in the flesh, if Jesus wasn't divine, this would be a blasphemous statement. Some people get hung up. Was Jesus divine? Was Jesus actually the Lord? Some people have a hard time with the Trinity. We can't understand the Trinity, but it's expressed, and we can believe, we can have faith. But here we see a very clear evidence that Jesus is making the claim of divinity. I am the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha and Omega is Greek alphabet letters. It's like saying A to Z. I am the A and the Z. So this is who we are coming together before. This is who we are rejoicing the Lord is King. It is King Jesus. And Jesus is the communication, the word from heaven. God in the flesh, and he's divine, and being the first and last, he has the final say. It's like Jesus saying, I am preeminent. I have the final say and the last word on everything. Nothing's outside of his control. Nothing's outside of his grasp. He can help. He can redeem. He's got no limited resources. He is preeminent. He's unlimited. Now, what about the devil? What can he say? I am the short term. Any power I have is slipping away. I've got a little bit now. It might seem like a lot, but it's going quickly. There's a time stamp on me, and my doom is sure. What do we often look at as the first and the last? You know, if, if we're honest, we might say, well, it's usually me, me first. What about me? Why is this happening to me? What can I get out of me, me, me? And we need to see Jesus as the first, not me as the first. This is the whole key to victorious Christian living. If you can make Jesus first and not me first. And that's that's where this is a, a fight of faith. It's not a grit your teeth and I got to do better, but it's like, Let's reorient, like I said last week, a course correction. Let's remember who owns me. I don't own him. He owns me. And it's Jesus first. Well, why live for Jesus first? Why not live for me first? Because Jesus is the first and the last. You're not the last. And if you want to hang in there, if you want the end to be well, 
live for Jesus. And he makes the end well, and he makes the now well. It's not just wait and hold on till I get to heaven. He's the first and last. He encompasses it all. So what do we see as first? Usually it's me, but maybe sometimes there are people out there who are codependent on other people. And, oh, I don't know what I'd do if I'd lose this person. No, it's Jesus must be first. And then you start looking at things differently. So what do we look at as first? And then what's the last? What do we often see as last? Usually it's the the trial, the situation, the circumstance we're going through. Oh, is this situation ever going to change? Man, how many situations, how many trials, troubles have we sat through? We thought this just feels like it's going forever. But if you look back a couple years ago, you went through some heavy stuff a couple years ago, and it's passed. And this stuff that you're going through now will pass. The Bible says it came to pass in, in a certain place. And that's a good scripture. It didn't come to stay. It came to pass. So what is the last? Jesus is the last, not the circumstance. He has the final say. The situation at hand does not have the final say. And if we can just look to the first and last, that will pull us through whatever it is we might be going through at this time. And then, of course, death death comes. Death says, I am the last. And all who are alive will one day be dead. But Jesus said in this verse that he was dead and is alive. And this is our Lord Savior. He was dead and is alive. And this is the hope we have. Nobody else through history could make that claim. No religious teacher, no great politician, no philosopher, no superhero. No one could say, I was alive. Or all they could say, all they could say, if they could say anything. No one from the past could speak, but if they could speak, they would say, I was alive, but now I'm dead. Only Jesus, Jesus was dead, and he's alive. And because he is alive, that means we will at one point be able to say that as well, because in him, we will be risen. We are risen spiritually, it says in Ephesians chapter 2. We will be risen literally when he returns, and we will be able to say along with him, I was dead, and now I'm alive. So, the Lord is the end. Death is not the end. The Lord is the end, and the Lord's love is never ending. Remember your first love again feeling dry, when we're feeling like I can't make it through this, we got to go back and say, Lord, stir me up again with the understanding, the revelation of your love. So, the Lord is the end, His love is never ending, and verse 9 gives us some extraordinary words. He says, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I know your works. Jesus just said, I am the first and the last. That is incredible. And then he makes it more incredible. It says, I was dead and now I'm alive. That makes it even more incredible. And then it makes it even more incredible. He says, I know your works. Well, how is that incredible? Well, look who knows your works. Look who knows you. Look who, who condescends to know you and to have a relationship with you, and doesn't forget you. Well, nobody knows what I'm doing, or, or nobody appreciates me, or nobody understands me. 
Jesus says, I know your works. And I was just reading something not long ago, talking about how the Lord, when you really understand who God is, God is a spirit, and we cannot fathom the infinite perfection of Almighty God, the creator of all things, the universe, creator of the stars, the planets, uh, all peoples, everything, anything that is good, put infinite to that. He's infinitely good. He's infinitely wise. He's infinitely powerful. You have a most extraordinary God that you can only get a little taste, touch, or understanding of through what he's chosen to reveal to us. But if we could even get to the place where we understand just how perfect and beyond perfection God really is, higher than anything we could come together with in our puny little minds, and then understand that in all that greatness and glory, he knows our works. He knows us. He condescends to fellowship with us. He condescends to remember us. He doesn't just leave us as dust mites in the dirt, which we're, we're even less than, than that in his sight, probably. And the great, glorious, perfect, infinite one knows us and has not forgotten our works. Someone says, I wish he would forget my words. Well, that's what he did in Jesus. In Jesus, he says, I remember your sins no more. But here he's telling the church, he's trying to encourage the church, I know what you're going through. And the Lord knows what we're going through. And here's the interesting thing. He says, I know your works, tribulation and poverty. I want to stop before we go further. Poverty there is linked to tribulation. Poverty is bad. And some people get upset because of the so-called prosperity gospel. And, of course, that there's a, an abusive, wrong, heretical type of prosperity message that's out there. But you don't swing the other direction and say we embrace poverty and, and the Lord wants us poor. That's what I encountered a lot of in China. There were pastors that thought that having money meant they weren't holy. And then their congregations wouldn't even support them. They said, well, you're a holy man. You don't need money. And that's wrong. That doesn't glorify God. Poverty is not what the Lord desires. In Psalm 35, 27, it says, Magnify the Lord who delights in the prosperity of his servant. And so poverty is, is bad. But there is something more than just material wealth. It's not material wealth that the Lord wants us to have as prosperity. That could be part of it. might not be. We're all going through seasons sometimes where there's lack, but he will get us through. He's glorified when we trust in him, and he brings us through. And, and to say it's holier to have lack is to go against Psalm 23, 1. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not lack. God is glorified in providing for his children. But then Paul said, I have learned to be content in whatever state I am in. So, um, whether abasing or abounding, I've learned to be content. So, poverty is not something to be embraced. The monks had it wrong. And Jesus said, I know what you're going through. And he didn't just fix the problem. But before we get to that, he said, even though you're going through tribulation and poverty, he said, you are rich. How is that? You are rich. Abundance and prosperity are not necessarily material riches. Smyrna was getting pounded with persecution because they embraced things that were of greater treasure, greater value. And what's that say to us? 
What are we grasping at? What, where are we finding true prosperity? In things, in material successes, or in spiritual growth and receiving the spiritual life from the Holy Spirit from the throne of heaven? This is what the Smyrnans were embracing. And when you embrace that, you invite some trouble. You know, the prosperity gospel that's on TV will say everything's going to go your way and, and, uh, and you know, everything's going to, you're going to be blessed, blessed, blessed. Well, as a Christian, you can be blessed. It's not necessarily when you score the touchdown. Don't you love it when you, somebody scores a touchdown, the winning game, uh, and uh, they say, well, I just thank God we were so blessed. Yeah, that's a blessing. Or when you find a parking lot when it's crowded and you get right near the door, yeah. Oh, I'm blessed. I got that parking spot. Or you get a promotion, I'm blessed. Yes, those are blessings. I'm not saying anything wrong is with that. But who says that the losing team or the person who got the far parking space isn't blessed either? Sometimes there's a greater blessing for the losing team. Because what happens if the winning team gets all cocky and prideful and start to think that they're gods and now they're getting away from the Lord? I mean, that's not necessarily what happens. But I'm just saying... We have to have divine reassessment. We have to reassess things according to what God sees. And so the losing team could divinely reassess their situation as well. They could say, we're blessed too. I mean, we got to play, and we didn't get hurt. You know, anything we look at, we have to look at it through the lens of the Christian worldview. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. That doesn't look like a blessing, but he said they will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. They shall be filled. And he said, blessed are those who are persecuted, for great is your reward. Divine reassessment. Divine reassessment. Where is the blessing? Where is the, the true riches? And um, Paul told Timothy, anyone living godly is going to experience persecution. Now, like I said at the beginning, been a lot of persecution through history. In America, in this place, we haven't had much persecution. Although now we are having subtle forms of persecution. I know people uh, could lose their jobs and have lost their jobs. We have bakers that got sued for holding their convictions. There's, We haven't had violent persecution, but that could come in the future. And even without that, you can have spiritual persecution. Sometimes we go through the pits and the depths and darkness the heaviness and it's a spiritual attack it's because you know you are trying to move forward and there is opposition if you never get hit by the enemy it may be you're going in the same direction because he doesn't care if if if, if you're not seeking the lord or, or or you know he'll make it easy for you you want you want this i'll give you this when you say no i want the true riches i want what jesus says are true riches that's when we have some troubles. But Jesus sees past appearances, and so divine reassessment, we learn to see past our appearances and see what does the Lord want me to see in this situation. So uh, in this situation, he saw past the appearances of those who say they are Jews and are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Now, this is a serious charge, and don't don't make the wrong mistake and think, well, this is being anti-Semitic. This has nothing to do with hating Jews. You know, the, the Jews are God's chosen people, and there's a plan for the Jews. What he was against was those calling themselves Jews 
but they were acting. They, they weren't fulfilling God's job description of God's chosen people. Their, their talk was one way. Their, their profession was one way, but they were bearing rotten fruit. And that amounts to blasphemy, so says Jesus in this passage. So you've got uh, these, he called them a synagogue of Satan. When you are doing something hypocritical, knowingly hypocritical, we all, we all fail to measure up at times. This isn't that a message of warning to that. It's a message of warning to those who make one profession with one side of their face, and then they talk another thing with the other side of their face. It's doing uh, a different walk from your talk. It's the guidance and the direction that you are in. And if it is not according to the truth, it amounts to blasphemy. So we, we bring it to ourselves. You know, is our is our walk matching our talk? Are are we saying one thing to church members and then doing another thing at work? Are we talking about being honest and fearful of the Lord, or are we going and cheating whenever we get a chance and this, that? I, I'm sure nobody in here meets that. But if, uh, you know, if that is out there in the world, and that's something to be discerning about, and the whole point is that we be true, we have integrity, and we stay within uh, what we're speaking, and we, and we don't uh, let our words be careless, we just speak honestly and with integrity. So Jesus uh, said to the Samaritans in the next verse, the good news, not really, it says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. I have to just speak one controversial thing here, and if you don't agree, it's okay. I don't I don't hold it totally, but you know, some people use this, this to speak of the future, that there's going to be tribulation and there's going to be people thrown in prison for 10 days in the future. But if that was the case, why was he warning the Smyrnas back in that time? It, okay, that's it. I'm passing by that. Um, but the point here is that it's the devil that is bringing the trouble here. It's not the Lord that brings the trouble. He sees something different in this, too. You know, he saw the he saw their tribulation and poverty, but he said, "You are rich." Well, here he sees some of you need to be faithful unto death, but he sees a crown of life. So again, using some divine reassessment, things are not always what they see. Seem. He saw a greater end. Jesus can see the greater end because he is the first and the last. So. He wanted to encourage them, but here's a question that can come up. You know, he cares about the Smyrnas. He, he's warning them. Some of you are going to be thrown into prison. It's the devil that does it. It's not God that's doing it. Sometimes we embrace troubles and say, God's doing this to me. He wants to teach me a lesson. He does want to teach us a lesson, but I don't believe God is throwing people into prison or putting cancers on people or whatever. It's the devil that comes to steal, kill, and destroy but God will use these things, and sometimes he will not intervene. And as in this case, it looks like he's not going to go and rescue them from them. He's going to let them, and he just says, be faithful until death. Well, what? I, what you know, the, who's the first and last? Again, I'd say, what about me? Why, why don't you come and deliver me? And it brings to mind 
John the Baptist. He was in prison. In Matthew 11, 6, Jesus addressed John the Baptist in prison. He said, Blessed is he who is not offended in me. And I'm sure John might have been thinking, is this, well, he, he sent messengers to ask, is this, are you the Christ? Are you the one, or was I wrong? You know, in other words, why, why haven't you gotten me free? Why haven't you come and gotten me? And we go further. Why was Peter delivered in the book of Acts from jail, but James wasn't? And Jesus said he went to go with the centurion's uh, he said, I would go and heal the centurion's servant. He was going to go all the way with the centurion's messengers to heal the servant, but he wasn't going to say, oh, John's in prison, let me go and get him out. Instead, he just gave a word. He told him what was going on, and he said, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. So there's the blessing again, divine reassessment. How can we not be offended when something's going wrong? It's because we have chosen Jesus as the first and last, that we are going to live for him first and submit to him in his infinite wisdom and understand that as he is the last, we will have a good outcome. Our story ends well, even though it might seem like we're in a prison at the moment, like John. You feel like you're in a prison at the moment. He has to become our all in all so that we never get offended in him, but embrace him whether the deliverance comes or whether it doesn't. But here, we can we can almost uh, be encouraged, or we can be encouraged, I don't want to almost, but deliverance will come at some point. It may be at the end until death. But now Jesus didn't say that they were going to die. He just said be faithful until death. And that's the the heart set we need to have. We need to be willing to be faithful until death. But the New Testament gives us promises of deliverance. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 18, Paul boasted, And the Lord shall deliver us from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. And Paul said, He's going he's gonna to deliver me, preserve me unto his kingdom. In the Old Testament, Psalm 34, 19, it says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him from them all. You can stand on the promises and expect deliverance. Well, but what about those who didn't make it? Well, we see in the book of Revelation there are martyrs. But I would not say or, or sign the contract right away saying, Well, that's me. I'm a martyr. If that's the case, you're going to have the boldness. You're going to have the grace. You're going to have the honor and there's a high honor for the martyrs through the book of Revelation. But unless you understand and know that you're finished and your life's work is done, I believe you can stand on the promises and you can say, the Lord's going to get me through this. And if at the very least, if you don't get through it now, you're getting through it to a greater weight of glory, an eternal weight of glory in the age to come. But Paul knew that he'd be preserved until his work was done. And, and then he said, another place. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. He was ready. So we can be encouraged with that. But the point here is to be encouraged that the Lord has good in store and blessings in store, even if you are going through the darkness and having a problem. But that's not easy to accept, is it? Because it's hard to see beyond the present suffering and embrace the future glory. But we go back to my friends in China. That's what got them through. 
and we don't necessarily end up as martyrs, but every Christian should have that in, in their heart, that I'm willing to die for you, Jesus, because you died for me. And trust, it's not a gloomy message because the God of life will carry us through the transition of death. And that's the glory of God. That's what happens. And so there's overcoming. In the end, it says, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. We can't avoid the first death. We don't, we, we, most of us, unless the Lord comes and picks us up, we can't avoid that. But we can avoid the second death. And the second death is the one we want to avoid. The first death is not necessarily a pleasant thing, but it leads to a pleasant afterlife if you have avoided the second death. And overcoming is the way to do that. How do you overcome? Just like he said, be faithful. Remember, Again, walk in his ways. Don't be like the, the Jews who weren't Jews. Paul said that they're not Jews who are not those who are Jewish inwardly in the book of Romans. It's all about our hearts, our inward focus. Who's first? Who's last? And when Jesus is the first and last, he's going to have the final say and the last word, and his word is always good. So him who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death and that is a glorious statement. When I talk about the perfection of God, His infinite glory, His infinite power, and you think of the infinite judgment that is coming upon the world in answer to the need for justice, what a glorious thing it is to say, I know the Savior, I know the judge, and He has forgiven my sins. He has set me free, and I can avoid all that is coming, the wrath of God. I can avoid the harsh reality of hell and judgment and damnation and I can enter into heaven and bliss and glory and a new age to come of discovering just how magnificent and awesome the kingdom of God is and the God who is the king of that kingdom. We only get a little bit now, but we have the true riches if that's in our hearts. If this stuff is in your hearts, you're richer than Elon Musk if he doesn't know gates if he doesn't know the Lord. If you know the Lord, you've got the true riches. And that ought to make us bold, strengthened, and ready for what comes in the days ahead. And uh, God will be magnified as we magnify him as first and last. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us a place, a seat with you thrones of heaven, and we thank you, Lord, for your presence with us, and we thank you that you know what we're going through. We thank you that you have the final say in everything we're going through, and we love you for that. We praise you and thank you. Ask that you help us, even as you condescend to know us, you also give yourself to us through your spirit, and you, you lift us up. So help us, Lord. I pray for blessings on each person here, that whatever... Uh, prison they might be in, that they would be set free and strengthened, and whatever trials that they're going through, that they would discover the blessings of your hand upon them and the deliverance that you've promised to your people. And we praise you and thank you, ask for your uh, blessing as we go in Jesus' name.